<laughs> Good to be, it's great to be with you all. Again, they have me back, surprise. I swear, every time I come up here, and, and it's an honor, I think to myself, I'm going to say something, I'm going to make a mistake, and they're not going to have me back, or, you know, I'm going to make a joke, and Charlie's going to be frustrated because it's about the Browns being worse than the Bengals, or <laughs> I haven't gone, I haven't crossed that line yet, or have I? So, uh, Southbrook, we are known in a lot of different ways by different people defined as different things, so maybe... Maybe you found Southbrook through Reverie, you attended a wedding. Maybe it's through Players Box. Maybe it's through BOG and our partnership with them, just distributing food um, to people in our communities that have food insecurity. Or maybe it's from the weekend service. Maybe it's because you, your kids heard about Southbrook kids, and so you're here. But one of the most critical ways that I would define our community is that Southbrook is a generous family. And a lot of good happens here. And we don't get to celebrate all of it. But when we do, we celebrate it. And last weekend, Southbrook, you raised over $155,000 for Lydia's mission. Yes. $155,000. And maybe it was your first time giving, and you're, you're thinking to yourself, wow, I felt really good. Here's what you need to know is that God does not just want generosity from you, but he wants it for you. Because there's, there's a transformation that happens when we let something that the rest of the world holds tightly and we let it pass through our hands. And so we, with an open hand, we let these resources go to help oppress women in Africa or to help the mental health of students in our community or to facilitate a wedding ceremony that then Ahan gives us the opportunity to strengthen marriages in our community through the counseling center. Or maybe it's through the weekend service where the good news is the gospel of who Jesus is and what he has done is shared. So that's why we are a generous people. We have two ways that we do this. We do it through either Push Bay or you can go to the information center to the generosity box. And if you're new to Push Bay, all you have to do is download the app. You look up Southbrook and you can give there. So we're in the New Covenant Review series this is our second to last week in the series, and it's really Paul in 2 Corinthians 3. He's contrasting between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. And I know covenant is not a word that we are familiar, we use really in uh, our time. So let me explain covenant a little bit. So in the Old Testament, God gave his people, the people of Israel, the Ten Commandments. So one way that we can think of Old Covenant is Old Testament. And New Covenant is New Testament. But a covenant is not just this legal contract. It was a bilateral agreement. It means it was between two parties. It was between God and the people of Israel, and it was composed of law and love. Law and love with the intention of transforming the hearts of the people of Israel. Have you ever seen somebody wearing sunglasses inside? I, I don't know about you, but this is where my mind goes. I either think, are you really as cool as Bono? <laughs> or I think they've got to be hiding something. What are they hiding? Do they have a black eye? Were they in a, in a fight and they don't want anybody to know they got hit? Or has she been crying all day and she doesn't want people to see the emotion in her red eyes? Or is, does this guy, is he 
wanting to check out other women in the same room as his wife, and he doesn't want her to follow his eyes. So I don't know about you, but if I don't trust anybody that's wearing sunglasses inside unless you're Ray Charles or Stevie Wonder. That's just what it's going to take for me. I want you guys to look with me at 2 Corinthians 3, 12. It says, therefore, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. We're not like Moses who would put a veil over his face to prevent the Israelites from seeing the end of what was passing away, but their minds were made dull. For to this day, the same veil remains when the old covenant is read. It has not been removed because only in Christ is it taken away. So Moses... Eric explained this a little bit last week. Moses goes up Mount Sinai, and he has this interaction with God. And while he's receiving the Ten Commandments, this brief interaction with God, God's goodness is so radiant that it causes this effect on Moses' face to glow. It's kind of like the moon reflecting the sun. And if I would think to myself, whoa, I got this glow. I can't wait to go down the mountain and show all of our people that I definitely had an interaction with God, that these Ten Commandments are authentic, they're from Him, and look what He does to us. But instead, Moses knows that this glow is going to leave him. And he doesn't want to scare the people of Israel because they think, oh, we lost what God gave us. We can't keep up. So Moses, knowing that he can't preserve this glow on his own, that it's only temporary, what he does is he wears a veil. He says to himself, I'd rather them not see this at all if it's only going to be temporary. And the symbolism of this passage is that Moses, on the very same day he gets the Old Covenant, he covers himself so that Israel won't see his flaws. So Moses is wearing sunglasses inside. And that is exactly when Israel, when they, they take the old covenant and they hide their flaws. They leverage religion and they twist it. This is what the human heart does with religion. See, religion is our way of dividing the world into two groups of people. Either you're good or you're bad. And the way that we do this is through either you know, little sins or big sins. So, for example, big sins are typically things like bribery, extortion, uh, you know, sexual irregularities, behavior, all these different things, felons. So any of those things are considered bad sins. So what we do is we say, okay, well, I'm human. To be human is to err. We're all going to make mistakes. So as long as I don't cross this line, then I'm okay. This is why Dana Carvey's church lady was so successful on SNL. It's, yeah, it's because he, on one hand, he's having a conversation with Satan, and then the next minute, he's poking fun at a family who walks into church late. And we relate to it. I don't know about you, I grew up in a town, and to some extent, a household, where we would say, oh, they're, they're so-and-so. They're kind of, mm, kind of closer to being a bad person, because they've done something a little bit worse than me, and we go back and forth. And you might be thinking, no, that's not me. Like, I don't do that. I'm, it's 2023. I'm so much more tolerant than I used to be. But let me tell you an example from the 1950s. In the 1950s, it was all too common, unfortunately, for people in the workplace to demonstrate sexual harassment. So you would have CEOs that are hitting on their secretaries all the while they're married. 
But no one would think that person is not fit for their job. As long as he or she is faithful to their wife, they can flirt with all the other staff members as much as they want, and it's okay. Well, now that's just reversed. Sexual harassment is completely unacceptable. You will be canceled for sexual harassment. And I'm not here to point out which one of these things is worse because in my mind, they're both sin. But what the human heart does is we are constantly moving the line and saying, no, this is bad and this is not. And then as, as soon as people start to call us, call us intolerant, we change the line. We disguise the way that we are still dividing up the world between good people and bad people, small sins and little sins. And you might be thinking, oh, man, I would not have come to the early service if I knew I wasn't getting extra points. And you're still not going to get extra points when the early service is even earlier in September. So then we're left with this scale and we think, okay, I'm, I'm doing all these things to try and even it out. And here's an example. Here's how you can know if you're playing the, the old game of religion. If you say or think the words, life's not fair. Or that's not fair. Because how do we come up with this sense of fair? We're looking at a scale and we're saying, all right, I just need to be better than this person. So I'm only going to do these things. And then because of that, my scale is set where God owes me. And here's how you know if you think that God owes you. Because if you look over at somebody and you say, oh, I know I'm superior to them but they did all these bad things wrong and their life is going better for them than mine is for me and I haven't done those things. See, religion is not just a, uh, for formal traditions of, of how, how they operate. It is, it's really, it's how the heart operates. And Jesus, in Mark 2, he says something so profound. He says this, no one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Otherwise, the new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. And of course, his whole audience is sitting there and they're going, yeah, duh, like tell us something we don't know. Well, I've known that since I was old enough to know anything. Because for them, it was kind of like an iPhone. A garment was expensive. If you've got a crack or a chip in the screen, you're thinking, ah, oh, this is too expensive to just discard. I'm going to put a screen protector on it. I'm going to ride this out. So they were constantly sewing patches onto their garments. Everybody had this figured out. So Jesus, he's like, okay, I can tell I'm losing yet. I'm going to talk about alcohol. So then he says, and no one pours new wine into old wineskins. They're just nodding their heads again. Go, yeah, yeah, we know this. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins, and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. Jesus says, no, they pour new wine into new wineskins. And what he's saying here, it is so unique. He's saying, anything that you thought that you knew about religion, I've come to show you that it is so different. What I have for you, I've, I have fulfilled the old covenant, and I've retired it. What's happening here is new. And by the way, it is incompatible with the old religion. So if you, if you try to combine them, if you try to play the spiritual game of you know, big sins and little sins, and have Jesus, it's going to explode. The wineskin's not going to stay together. So then in this very same chapter of Mark, Jesus explains how he will remove the veil. Well, let me explain a little bit about the gospel of Mark. So Mark, you might know, he was not one of the original 12 disciples. Okay, so 
It's believed that Mark compiled all these stories. He collected them about 30 years after Jesus' death and resurrection. So who's he getting these stories from? He's getting most of these stories from Peter, Jesus' most famous disciple. And so Peter's in his older age now. And you can, you can just hear him telling stories over and over about the most radical ride he ever had in his life three years with the person of Jesus and how his life has been forever changed and he'll never get over it. So you've got Mark and he's sitting by a fire and he's saying, Peter, tell me, yeah, no, not that, I heard, I know that story. Tell me that one. Tell me that one that was just with you and him. Or tell me that one that was at the very beginning, like when you guys were just starting out. And so that's what's happening here. Peter is telling Mark about how he, Andrew, James, and John, they were the first four followers of Jesus. So look at Mark 2, just a few verses earlier. In verse 13, Mark is writing, Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. So these four guys that are following Jesus, they're all fishermen. So they're in lake towns. And a large crowd came to him, and he began to teach them, because what Jesus was doing was interesting. And then it says, as he walked along, he saw Levi. And as soon as you see that, you're like, oh, man, that guy's got to be cool, right? <laughs> I've got bad news for you. He's not. Actually, it says that Levi was the son of Alphaeus. So Peter knows Levi just enough to know his dad and that Levi is messed up. It says that he was sitting at the tax collector's booth. This was his job, his occupation. So a tax collector, what they do is uh, they're basically assigned by the Roman Empire that is oppressing the Jewish people to tax them. So Rome's like, hey, we're going to tax them at like 50 to 85%, but we don't want to extend the, the man hours to get all of the tax money, so instead we're going to add insult to injury, and we're going to put these people in poverty, and we're going to use their own people to do it. So any of these tax collectors were the people that said, you know what, I don't care what anybody else thinks about me. I just want money. So here's Levi He's sitting at this tax collector's booth, and Jesus, oh, I can just, just picture with me. Peter, Andrew, James, and John are with Jesus. They're following him around from town to town. They come to town, and Peter sees Jesus starting to stare at Levi. And Peter's like, oh, I can't wait to watch this. <laughs> Like, Jesus is about to lay into this guy. What does Jesus do? He says, follow me. And Levi, he got up and he followed him. And actually, Levi was so messed up that later in the story, when he's transformed by the grace of Christ, Jesus is actually like, we need a rebrand. Like, people know you are evil. We're calling you Matthew now. And so he later goes on to write the Gospel of Matthew. It's just a great example that it doesn't matter how bad you are, God will use you if you follow him. So then what happens is while Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house. Okay, so if you were to eat with someone, like a picture that you're eating with someone at a restaurant, it was a sign of acceptance. But then to go even further and eat in their home, this was a move that was rattling Peter, Andrew, James, and John. Okay, so they're... They're like, oh, man, we, we thought we were into this Jesus thing, and now I'm not so sure. Like, he's, he's with criminals. So they're kind of just hanging back, and they're watching Jesus take Matthew to, Matthew to Levi, to Levi's house, to dine with him. 
And not only that, but all of these other tax collectors and sinners were eating with them too. So it was like Levi was like, hey, tax collectors, we're shutting down the office. We're going to go to my house. We're going to clean out my cupboards. We're going to drink my wine. And so when the teachers of the law, they show up at Levi's house, who are Pharisees, so these are people that are religious they're using the Old Covenant. They think they've got it together. They've only done the little sins, if even those. So they see him eating with the sinners and the tax collectors, and they ask his disciples. Here's why they didn't ask Jesus. They didn't want to go into the house with Levi and then show that they were also accepting sinners as they were. So, and neither did Peter, Andrew, James, or John. They're sitting on the porch. You can, I can just picture leaning against the door and going, oh, man, if we go in there. And so what happens? The Pharisees come up, and they say, hey, why is Jesus, why does he eat with these tax collectors and sinners? And finally, Peter goes, oh, man, I honestly, I don't know. I'm going to go in and get an answer for you. Okay, I'll be right back. Please don't tell anybody I'm going in. So he goes in, and he asks Jesus, he says, on hearing this, Jesus said to them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. So not only is Jesus dining with someone who is a sinner in a room full of sinners, he doubles down and he says, I'm not here for the healthy, I'm here for the sick. And I could picture Levi and all of his guests just going, <gasps> like, Levi, what do you invite us over for? Like, this guy's just insulting us. And then Jesus takes it even further, and he says, I have not come to call the righteous, but to call the sinners. You know what Jesus is saying there? Is if you're going to keep playing the old game of religion, I can't help you. I don't have anything that I can say to you that's going to help you. I got to tell you about my first car. All right, so I turned 16 in 2005. I'm the middle child. Yeah, okay. Okay, I don't know why you're laughing yet, but I'll figure it out. <laughs> so I turned 16 in 2005, and I get my first car, you know, past my driver's test. I'm the middle child, so this car, my mom had it first. She drove it to and from work, and then she gave it to my older sister. And then two years later, I get it. So I want to I create a picture for you, because I looked on the Internet, and none of them were bad enough. This was the opposite of a cool car. So it, it was as square and boxy as a refrigerator. It had 200,000 miles on it. It was 11 years old by 2005. It was, it was the opposite of cool. So what does a 16-year-old do who gets his driver's license and a car? What does, he, what does he want to do? He wants to pick up chicks. Yeah, and I can still overhear my dad say, well, honey, at least we know Levi's never going to get a girl pregnant in that car. <laughs> now, mind you, I already told you I'm the middle school child, but I'm also homeschooled all the way until I went to college. Okay, so Jesus had more fun than me. So I get this car. A lot's starting to make sense for you now, right? Yeah, I'm homeschooled. So uh, once you're homeschooled, always homeschooled. Yeah, that's... It's normally the response I get. Okay, so I'm driving this car, you know, a couple months go by, and then the transmission begins to fail. So I have this car that has nothing automatic inside of it except of a transmission, and now that is only almost automatic. 
And my parents love this, okay, because guess what happens? I can't go above 35 miles per hour. <laughs> Months it went on like this. So I'm, I'm cruising around, windows down, thinking I'm pretty cool, 35 miles an hour. And any time that I need to go a long distance, I hold my breath. I pray to God, please help it shift into fourth this time. Like I'm smacking it on the dash. I get on the interstate. And if it wasn't going to go into fourth gear, I would slow down to like 25 miles an hour and then speed up real fast to like 5,000 RPM. And then 50% of the time, I'd be cruising to 70. But the other 50% of the time, I had 27 other speed limit capable vehicles passing me screaming profanity or honking their horn. <laughs> it's unsafe to be 35 on the interstate. And so most of the time, I would go like a mile down to the next exit. And with my head held low, I would pull over and make the rest of the way through back roads. So one night, I'm in a rush. I'm finishing up work. I got to get to soccer practice. So I pull in the driveway in this janky car. I try to put it in park, but it only goes like halfway there. So I hop out of the driver's seat, and I watch my vehicle crush the garage door like a soda can. And I'm so flustered, I don't even shut it off. I run in the house as fast as I can, and I tell my dad, the car's in the garage. <laughs> and he's like, yeah, that's where cars are supposed to be. And of course, I say, but you're not supposed to pull in with the door down. And so he jumps up, and we run outside. He notices it's still in drive, pinned against the garage door. He hops in. He puts it in reverse, and he backs it up. And I remember just, again, I'm holding my head low. I'm walking over to where he's at. I'm just ready for an open the door and let me have it. And he looks at me and he says, it's okay, son. Everybody makes mistakes. So he says, I know you got somewhere you got to be. I'll take care of this. Let's go inside. Let's get your cleats. Hop back in the car. And he calms me down. Get on my way. I hit soccer practice. And then it's dusk. I come home. It's dark. Everybody's inside. I pull in the driveway. And I'm not even prepared to stare in the face of my mistake again. And there it is, all crinkled up. And tears just fill my eyes. Because I knew that my dad had every excuse to lay into me. He could have called me any name he wanted in the book. He could have said, you're an idiot. How dare you? I can't believe it. Oh, by the way, you're going to spend all summer with your job paying me back to replace that door. But he didn't. And the point is that I understood how amazing that grace was because I knew I deserved just the opposite. I deserve just the opposite. And that's why I'm standing here in front of you today, all these years later, talking about this moment I experienced grace that transformed me. And now I'm waiting for the next big mistake my kids are going to make. To say, it's okay. And what Jesus is saying here, is he's saying that unless you are willing to admit that you deserve wrath or that you deserve punishment, but you get something else, that, that's when you can hear what I have to say. So now the distinction that Jesus makes is not between, it's not between the good or the bad. In the new covenant, the only distinction that concerns God now is between the proud and the humble. He's saying, look away from what you've done or what you haven't done, 
and look at what I've done. <laughs> and here's how you can tell if you're a part of the new covenant. It's how you deal with moral failure. So let's say you've got friends and family, you've got coworkers. Do any of them confide in you when they mess up? If they don't, it probably means, because all of us mess up, if they don't confide in you, it probably means that they don't think that you are going to express sympathy or compassion. Are you the kind of person that says, how dare you? I can't believe you would ever make that mistake. You have so much to do to right your wrongs. As soon as we hang out there, we are trying to pour the new wine in the old wineskin. And maybe it's not the way that you deal with other people's moral failure, but how do you deal with your own moral failure? Because if you can't look your friends in the eye, if you can't think about how God sees you, and if you spend all of your time avoiding looking in the mirror, that means you still think that you are your own Savior. Jesus is not your Savior. And so this new covenant is not about condescending other people or beating yourself up. It's about what Jesus has done for you. And maybe this is, maybe the old faith is the only kind of faith you were ever told from your priest, your pastor, or your parents. And so you've been pushing the, the, the new wine into the old wineskin, and every time it does, it blows up. And eventually you throw your hands up and say, this isn't working, I'm walking away. Jesus never meant for the church to be a museum for saints. He never meant it to be filled with people that are stale and believe they've got it all together. He always meant the church to be a hospital for sinners. In fact, Eugene Peterson, he says, it's not bad enough that all of the churches are full of congregations of sinners, but their pastors are sinners too. You better believe they are. Yeah. And that's why I said anytime I get up here, I think to myself, I can't believe I'm allowed to be there. Just so you know, anybody that gets up and they're able to talk about some spiritual things, I start to think, wow, that person is impressive. But let me tell you right now, I'm half as mature as you think I am. <laughs> yeah, there's the amen. But as long as we are people that know we don't have it figured out, we can point to the God that does. And so this is, this is what I have to say today. If you don't follow Jesus, or maybe you've been following the, the, the new wine and the old wineskin Jesus, what you've got to do is say, something's broken in me. I can't do it on my own. I can't dig myself out of my own hole. And the moment that you do, Jesus rushes to eat with you. And that's the kind of covenant that Jesus came to establish for all of us. So let's close with this. The new covenant, people saying, I am more sinful than I ever dared to believe, but I'm more loved by Jesus than I ever dared to hope. Amen? I want you to come back next week because we have a boldness in us. We sang this morning, all my hope is, Je is in Jesus because he took my sins away. And so next week, it, here's what's amazing, is God doesn't say, all right, just admit that you're sick. Just admit that you're a sinner. And then I'll make you limp through life feeling inadequate. No, he says, I'm going to give you 
what I call the advocate. He's the Holy Spirit, and he's going to equip you and animate you to do things that you couldn't do on your own, and I'm going to transform you through him, and you are going to light up your community. So come back next week as Austin leads us into the discussion of the Holy Spirit in 2 Corinthians 3. I love you, church. Have a great weekend.